This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to the Fed Talk. Today is Friday, March 25th, 2022. I'm Jason Breifel from Shaw, Bransford & Roth. Today, we are discussing the insurance equity gap with leaders in the insurance industry. This is a timely discussion for Women's History Month, focusing on the gender coverage gap and the ways industry will help bridge the divide. Let's get started by introducing our guests. Uh, First, joining me from Worldwide Assurance for Employees of Public Agencies, better known in the area as WEPA, is Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO. Welcome back to the program, Shane. Great to be here, Jason. Thanks for having me. Uh, And our second guest today is Allison Salka. She's the Senior Vice President and Director of Research at LIMRA, the world's largest leading insurance and financial services trade association. Welcome to Fed Talk, Allison. Thanks, Jason. Happy to be here. Um, and, And as I said in our intro, we're talking about the insurance equity gap, and I'm so pleased to have you both here to talk about this issue and what it means in the federal community, but also what it means more broadly in our society. Uh, But before we dive into our conversation, I just wanted to offer you both an opportunity to introduce yourselves and your organizations for any of our listeners who may not be familiar, um, uh, certainly with LIMRA um, or for those who might not have heard about WEPA. Uh, Shane, can you just give us a quick rundown of, of, of what WEPA is? Absolutely. Thank you, Jason. Uh, Nonprofit founded in 1943 by request of uh, President Roosevelt to solve the problem of federal civilian employees traveling in war zones during World War II and the traditional exclusion for life insurance covered in the war zone. So we had up to 20,000 civilian feds, principally OSS, and a number of other uh, agencies and departments that were stood up during the war, later either dissolved or rolled into the CIA. That happened in the 1950s. Um, And they couldn't get life insurance anywhere. And so we were formed um, to solve that problem and have been since expanded to all civilian agencies and departments. We we cover all of them. So we have about 46,000 life insureds in our program. And next to Fegley, we're the largest provider of group uh, life insurance to civilian feds. So um, we continue that mission to this day to promote the health, welfare, and financial well-being of civilian feds. We have 13 board members who are all civilian feds themselves. And so they're they're non-paid and they're very invested in giving uh, our our federal workforce all the options and great options for employee benefits. Awesome. Thanks so much, Shane, and thanks for for all you and the WEPA team do for those policyholders in the federal community. Um, Allison, I was really excited that we were able to get you to join this program. I I had never personally heard of Limra before we were planning this show, but your organization is huge. You have a big research team underneath of you um, studying these issues. Can you let us know kind of what LIMRA is and, and what your role as the Senior Vice President and Director of Research entails? 
Absolutely, I'm happy to. So LIMRA is a nonprofit industry association of insurance and financial services companies. And we're dedicated to providing research and education to the financial services industries. So I have a team of people and what we do is we research insurance, workplace benefits and retirement benefits, products, markets, distribution so that we can help answer key questions for our members. And the company has been around for over a hundred years. So we've been benchmarking things like life insurance sales for a hundred years now. Um, and again, we're, we're designed to provide insights so that people can better understand what's going on um, in, with products, markets, and distributions that to meet their financial needs. Awesome, thank you. And you mentioned you all have been doing this for over a hundred years. Who are those those companies or those organizations who are using the research and information um, that you're putting together? Are, are, is this information also used by governments? Yes. So again, we are a member-based organization, um, but as a not-for-profit and one whose mission is, you know, research and education, we routinely share our research. We've, you know, testified before the Department of Labor, shared our um, research in a variety of forums, and we regularly get requests from different federal agencies or, or groups. And again, we're happy to share those insights um, to just help inform. So we are not an advocacy organization in any way. So, you know, I like to think of our research as really, um, we're, we're really purely based on figuring out what's, what's really happening and sharing that information. And our member companies are, again, they're your big insurance companies, they're your big asset managers, they're really the companies that are designing life insurance products and, you know, retirement products, retirement plan products, workplace benefits, and the ones who sell them, um, you know, either through distribution, you know, distribution firms, um, companies like that. So we have globally, I believe it is over 800 members. So it's a, it is a broad group. Um, it started off historically 100 years ago as life insurance, but has really expanded since then. And we've even created a, um, you know, a, a subset brand, the Secure Retirement Institute, which is an area that focuses on um, retirement issues and concerns. Yeah, and I... Uh... We'll, we'll talk about that some more as we go through the program, um, Allison, in that, you know, life insurance, as Shane mentioned, has, has long been something that folks have, have been concerned about in this country and globally um, in the past century or so. Um, and then as, of, as people live longer and, and as they want to enjoy their retirement and have that peace of mind throughout their life, these other uh, aspects are coming in. Um, and, and we'll talk about that today. Um, Shane, I would I would guess that WEPA is a uh, a member or of 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 Limra or at least a, uh, a, a consumer of the information that they're producing. Yeah, both, and uh, we we get a lot of benefit out of uh, many pieces of their research. Uh, WEPA is a life insurance organization, and uh, while we focus on civilian feds only, we still live in the environment which is um, uh, the life insurance industry. And so what's happening both with carriers and finances and you know reactions to changes in, in, in the, in the, in the um, investment community, for example, with our assets matters a great deal. It matters what's happening with trends and distribution, with product. And so we, often part of our environmental scan, a critical part of that as we do our strategic long-range planning is LIMRA research and data. And then uh, we have several members, or I'm sorry, staff leaders who are part of it. And I'm also part of the um, their uh, Life Insurance Council CEO forum. And that's a, a networking and, and informational workshop environment that I get a tremendous amount out of it's a, it's an outstanding organization awesome um that's really helpful context to, to kind of understand how the two organizations work together and i think for the purposes of our show here today where we're talking about um the the issue of this this women's equity and coverage gap that that broad industry research being produced by limra 
and then um, what that looks like within the federal marketplace that's more more of the focus for WEPA is what we're going to dive into and talk about in more detail after our first break. You are listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. I'm here with WEPA CEO Shane Canfield and Senior Vice President and Director of Research at LIMRA, Allison Salka. We are talking about the uh, equity and insurance, life insurance coverage gap um, here for our Women's History Month program and uh, wanted to, to bring up some, some really interesting research that uh, Lemra uh, put out last year, Allison, that found um, only 47% of women uh, have life insurance compared to 58% of men. Um, and, and moreover, those women are less likely to carry uh, the same amount of coverage as their male counterparts. Uh, I think this is really interesting at a time where we're talking about other kinds of, of, of equity issues. Um, in this country. I was just hoping you could kind of unpack that statistic I just shared with us um, and, and, and if there were some other interesting findings in that, that, that um, research study. Absolutely. So, yes, as, as you mentioned, um, women are less likely to have life insurance coverage than men. And this has been, you know, the same story for years. So despite all of the gains that women are making in other areas, this is still a gap that we see. And I think there are a variety of reasons for it. Um, so one, women are less likely to be... Um, the way um, there are fewer women wage earners compared to men. So if someone is going to stay home and take care of the family, usually it is the woman in a partnership, which means she may not be earning a, a paycheck from a company despite all of the work that she's doing. So employment rates are a little bit different. And we know people who are employed are more likely to have insurance. And when you look at things like life insurance, a lot of times the first thing that people people think of is I need to replace my paycheck. So they may not be thinking of all of the unpaid work um, that these women are doing. So if for something were to happen to them, you would still need to replace all of the unpaid work that they do, whether it's taking care of children. Um, you know, there are a variety of different things that they do. And so we have done focus groups with women where we asked them why they didn't have insurance. And many of them, if they didn't work, weren't sure that they should have it or they needed it, or they didn't see themselves as typically people who had insurance. Um, so they had these visions of people who had insurance as, you know, very responsible people who were, um, you know, working full time. And that's not really, um, you know, the truth at all. Everybody who contributes to a household or to a house and to make it run, you know, who, who makes that contribution, it's important to make sure that they're covered and they're cared for um, financially. And so I think, you know, there's a need to sort of readjust that that vision. And, you know, as you look at women, as more of them are in the workforce, you still see more of them working, or excuse me, more of them getting insurance, but there's still, there still is a significant gap. And if you want to talk about some of the, you know, the other, the other things that, that have been happening, I mean, women face a number of headwinds that really make it difficult for them to get life insurance that they need. Women still earn less than men. Um, and right now, you know, just 47% of women, so that's about 62 million people have coverage, as you said, compared to about 58% of men. A lot of women are aware that they need life insurance um, or that they need more. But again, they tend to be more worried about other factors. So if you ask women what are the things they're most concerned about right now, they'll talk about things like um, 
um, household expenses, things like um, inflation. So life insurance is not often top of mind. Thanks so much, Allison. And I think it's it's really interesting to kind of put this issue in that that broader context of how people value the work that they're doing, whether that work is paid or not, um, and, and kind of those considerations that come in on the consumer side. Um, and we're going to talk about that as we get into our program more. But, but Shane, I, I'm curious, are, are there similar percentages or a similar gap in the federal community? Um, what does that mean? What is that looking like? This is one of the ways we use Limer. So civilian feds, um, uh, we take Limer data and we try to slice and parcel it in such a way that it fits the civilian workforce, because that's the broader context, what Allison was just talking about. And largely, uh, it, we can transfer and assume some of those same statistics, but when we look at um, the percentage of federal workforce, say by gender, there's no way that we can tell, uh, there is no data source that says the kind of percentages that Allison is referring to. So what we do is, is glean from the Limmer research and apply in a, in a thoughtful way, overlay that on what um, federal data that we have. And the way we get federal data is FedScope, OPM does publish a lot of data. In fact, it publishes a tremendous amount of data, more than any corporate employer would ever publish. So we do have a fairly good profile of federal government, how old people are, what their educational level is, where they live. All of this is public information. Um, <clears throat> we do know uh, from GAO studies that, that women in the federal workplace make, uh, in fact, the, the president talked about this a couple of weeks ago, I believe, 93 cents for every $1 that men make. That's actually a really good figure that beats the, the national average for businesses across the country. So, so there's another data point that we can use as we start to make sure that we design the right products, that we bring the information across the correct way and try to fill that, that gap because the, the gap does exist in the federal workforce, especially a lot of two earner couples, a lot of professional working couples in areas and COVID has really affected the, the demographic. A lot of um, families, one person stopped working and started uh, working in, in, outside the home and started working in the house because it was easier, better. It was a lifestyle decision to say, raise a family at home rather than, um, you know, having, you know, third parties uh, raise, raise um, play a bigger role in child rearing. So, Jason, we aggregate all this information together. And um, I, I, I do think that the way we consider life insurance uh, in this country is outdated. Uh, I don't know if we'll have time to talk about that a little bit, but I, I think stripping away the um, gender norms around life insurance, which is generations old of the way men and women in families have thought about this, that needs to end. And what we need to do is what Allison was talking about, which is do risk-based assessments at the family level. I think there are a number of myths around life insurance that that should be changing and i think one is who needs insurance and and why do they need to be insured you know i think another myth that we've seen is that you know insurance is more expensive than it actually is so we asked people about the most common reason that they don't get coverage that they say they need and it's because they think it's too expensive um so actually 80% of women overestimated the cost of coverage when we asked them to, to estimate how much it costs. So I think one of the barriers that people face is not knowing, you know, what it costs when really 
it's it's really um, something that people are able to get. Um, you know, and people don't know how much they need, so they can find someone or they should be able to talk to somebody um, to get those answers. Because another thing that we found is that there's um, not just a gender gap, but there is a knowledge gap. Um, so people aren't just likely to underestimate um, how much insurance costs, but they're likely to underestimate their level of knowledge too. So, and this is this is women um, in particular too. They're more likely to tell us they have lower levels of knowledge. So only a little over one in um, one in four women says that they feel like they're knowledgeable about financial services and products. Um, so women are less likely likely to feel knowledgeable than men. So when we test them, men and women um, at high levels of literacy, there are about the same number of them. Um, so I think women are more likely to underestimate their levels of knowledge. And I believe that is a barrier to having them take action. That's super, that's super fascinating, uh, Allison, that, and again, so much of, the, of whether people take actions on things, buy products or not, you know, there's all kinds of psychology and other things going on there that are important to understand, um, you know, as companies so that you can help people close the gaps and, and do things that they want to um, in their lives. Uh, Shane, curious about your thoughts on on some of what Allison just, just, just shared. Yeah, I'll give you a uh, real world application of the concepts that Allison just said, which were uh, tremendous. And, and that's the kind of industry knowledge that Limmer is doing that we in turn use. In this case, we redesigned our website in a, this wasn't a, 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 a makeover of the way it looks. This was a complete deep dive into how do people use our information and website. Most life insurance companies, for example, if you go to their site, the very first thing on the page is an application for insurance. We studied that. And in our case, federal employees, they're curious, they want to know more. And so we purposefully did not take that approach. We have an informational approach. It's the first thing that comes up in front of people. And it's how do you, you know, answering any of these questions that you might have because of what Alice is saying. There's a hesitance around how much does it cost, but also what does it mean exactly? What's the difference between term and whole life? How, mu how much do I need? And what are the factors to consider uh, when I select a life insurance plan? We felt, and our hit rate on our website confirms that rather than taking somebody directly to an application, we're going to give them what they really often want, which is the educational piece. So, so we took that information and, and have used it in real time. Thanks for sharing that story, Shane. And it's it's a, a really powerful example of the power of uh, you know user experience and human centered design, and and really thinking about uh, providing information to to consumers so that they can make decisions. And, and these topics, life insurance, how this all works, how this fits into your budget or not, um, isn't easy. Uh, you know, there's, there's certainly no course in, in, in uh, high school or college or anything else about this. And, and so um, it's great that there are these resources out there that you're offering on your site at WEPA that Limmer is putting out into um, uh, uh the world and and we're going to be talking about how that information is used to to kind of meet the evolving consumer considerations out there um after a break um and we'll come back into our conversation you're listening to fed talk on federal news network Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford & Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. 
Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're entering the second half of our program talking about the insurance equity gap. I'm joined by uh, Shane Canfield from WEPA and Allison Salka from LIMRA. Uh, and, and I wanted to continue our conversation uh, focused on the consumer. Uh, you have talked about uh, different considerations, uh, the, the importance of education. Um, in the marketplace for uh, individual consumers um, around things like um, life insurance. So just kind of, can you help us unpack for our audience? How are you all researching those things? How do you decide what trends or issues uh, to study? Uh, Because I imagine it's kind of a, a moving target, huh, Allison? It is, but we're, we're always really trying to focus on the things that stop people from doing the things they know they should. So there's a field of research called behavioral finance where, you know, psycho- it's like a mixture of psychology and economics. So there are so many things we all know we should be doing, right? We know we should have life insurance. We know we should be saving for retirement. We know we should be going to the dentist for a cleaning, you know, once a year. But, you know, intentions are one thing actions are another. So our research focuses on how do we help turn intention into action? How can you help someone do the things that they know they should? Um, And that's always a challenge because people always have other things that they'd rather think about, right? Um, We just completed a study where we asked people, you know, we found out they'd rather talk about religion and politics before they would talk about end-of-life decisions. So these are not things that people naturally want to talk about, but we want to make them comfortable. And COVID, for better or worse, made that uh, made those discussions more of a reality for most of us. I, I don't know that there are a lot of people who have not felt in some way, you know, know somebody um, where somebody passed away from COVID. So that really increased the awareness of mortality. Um, honestly, previously, people tend to worry more about outliving their assets. Right. So they're more worried about having enough for retirement and not outliving their savings versus passing away too soon. Um, So COVID changed that. And then, um, you know, we wanted to understand, okay, if you're more likely to be aware of this, how do we help you get in touch with the education you need and and take action, overcome that inertia. Because sometimes you're aware you need to do something, but you're afraid. You're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, You're worried about um, somebody losing their job. You're worried about, you know, we asked them, we've asked consumers at different periods during the pandemic, what were their primary concerns? Health and security of loved ones, my kids in school, if you had kids. So how do you cut through all the noise too? And again, make it easy for them to do what they what they should be doing and that they want to do. I think it's a really interesting point that, you know, clearly the pandemic has altered people's perception or at least put put these issues higher up on, on the priority list. I'm curious if you have seen that as well, Shane, uh, at WEPA and the kinds of increasing questions you all have been getting. Yeah, absolutely. And it was a perfect storm um, with COVID, but also, uh, you know, the economy took a really, well, we're still, it's, things are still rocky right now, but in the, um, in the spring and the summer of 2020, if you remember, um, you know, the equities markets in particular just tanked and fixed income was already low. And so you had this terrible storm of, of people dying. So you're thinking about your mortality, an uncomfortable subject as Allison was talking about. You've got everything you're invested in, whether it's your TSP or, or other kinds of investments, that's either tanking or on a roller coaster. That's happening at the same time when, um, 40 million people lost their jobs. Now we do know 
at least 40 million. We do know that a lot of our uh, members, 46,000, these are families where many of them are two earner couples, but um, it's very rare that both of them are civilian feds. And therefore, if you've got this tremendous tanking of the job opportunities and people being laid off and fired and businesses going out and under, um, this is affecting a lot of households. So there's a great deal of of uncertainty um, that what we find is consumer confidence index was way off. And what we've found over the years is that is that people's research and then actual purchase of something like life insurance really maps very closely to the consumer confidence index. Because if you're not sure about what's happening in your personal finances, you tend to not do anything. So you, these decisions were frequently put off. And then one, one more piece, Jason, which was really interesting. So our, our organization, we don't have brokers or agents or any of that in the middle. We are what in the business is called direct-to-consumer. And there are other direct-to-consumer organizations in the insurance business out there, but in the life insurance business, not too many because distribution, Allison talked about distribution, how life insurance is distributed is um, also steeped in history. The agent model, a life insurance agent, we've been hearing about that. It's been around for um, many, many decades. And all of a sudden, here comes COVID. And the last thing you want is a stranger in your house across the table talking to you about life insurance or a paramedical uh, examination by another stranger in your house um, doing those traditional uh, life insurance uh, medical uh, tests, which is, you know, nobody finds that enjoyable. It's not horrible, but who wants, you have to do a blood draw, you have to do a fluid check. And this is how the life insurance business has been underwriting and understanding the risk for a century. So all of a sudden, what happens? Agents can't get in people's houses. And we don't want to send paramedics to people's houses because they're, um, uh, they're also at risk. So enter technology. Everybody wants things faster, quicker, better. We have completely upended and redesigned. This is something that's been on the industry's radar for a long time. But all of a sudden, now things like different ways to call this accelerated underwriting, quick decision. That's what we call our process. We're putting this in place. So all of a sudden, how do you, because life insurance needs still exist, but how do you get it to people who have all these safety concerns, rightly so, and just in general with technology, want things quick, fast, and easy, how do you move from this invasive process that takes several weeks usually to something online that can be as quick as ordering a pizza on your app. So um, we we have completely changed the way we do underwriting, and we've spent a lot of time on this, as have many others in the in the industry, um, to make an online process where that two three week underwriting review of data is now done in 10 to 15 minutes in one online session. Yeah, so it's new. It, it increased the pace of technology um, evolution because suddenly you're right, people could not meet with somebody in their house. So, you know, digitization, um, a technology that helped um, the user experience or the customer experience suddenly became more important. And so lots of companies and lots of advisors focused on that. Um, as you mentioned too, accelerated underwriting. So consumers have these expectations, um, you know, on Amazon to be able to buy something and to be able to do it from their homes and to be able to do it pretty quickly. And so the industry had to catch up there. And that's the thing that accelerated underwriting is doing, it's increasing, you know, 
the customer satisfaction and the ease of them being able to do this. Because again, the easier it is, the more likely you are to be able to, the more likely you are to do it. If I have to have someone come to my house, if I have to have, you know, what feels like invasive work done, I, I'm going to put it off. But if it's easier, it's it's more likely that I'll do it. And I'm, I'm you know, it's the meeting the, the, the demands of consumers for how they're used to things going um, seems really clear here. I'm, I'm curious if, if at Limra or at WAPA you're seeing decisions being made out there in the market from consumers, particularly women, where we are, are, are talking about this, this coverage gap. Um, is that technology and some of those faster things helping them make those decisions, accelerating uh, the closing of this gap, or is it, is it kind of too soon to tell? No, I would say the industry has been focused on closing the gap for a while. Um, but I would say that they, you know, the, the technologies that they were investing in were more back office type of technologies. But now you're starting to see as they invest in the legacy technologies and the digital needs, they're actually able to focus a lot more on the customer experience. So historically, life insurance, um, as Shane was saying, was sold through agents. Um, the agent was the face to the customer. Um, so a lot was dependent on that. But as direct to consumers changing, as carriers become more focused on as consumers expectations get higher you know insurance companies have responded and they've responded using technology for things like accelerated underwriting but also frankly for the ways that they market um, that they market and communicate to what I would call underserved markets. So those those markets where they recognize a need, but they're less likely to buy, you know, the middle market um, or, you know, women or different um, ethnic or demographic groups. Um, there's been a lot of time and technology developed to to figure out what are the best ways to reach these groups. Yeah, it's it's a, you know it sounds well, if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, Allison, it's the the technology is enabling that personalization to to the unique consumers, you know, whoever they are, where, wherever they're coming from, as opposed to just a general message for a general population. And historically, that was a population probably of white men, um, and, and and obviously that is not uh, the the total demographic uh, outlook for our country. Yes, we used to say that, you know, the, the industry's evolving from its PMS stage, which was pale, male, and stale, and recognizing that, you know, that, that the, the world is much, much broader than that. We do spend a lot of time making sure that we are focused on the needs of the civilian federal marketplace. We talked before about um, OPM and uh, FedScope and all the different ways we understand who feds are, but how do we deliver what the federal community needs broadly and make sure that we're not missing any pieces of the marketplace? So when we design our products, for example, and when we design our marketing and educational efforts, we take into account the entire swath of civilian federal employees by that, I mean, Jason, you know this well, so the federal government is full of many different professions, many different um, uh, geographic um, profiles, if you will. We have a lot of civilian feds in the D.C. area, but it's not the largest. Uh, most civilian feds are not in the D.C. area. They are spread out across the country. We have everything from park rangers and TSA agents to um, you know, lawyers and PhDs and physicians. So that's a broad swath of, of the public. So listening to what they want in terms of education and making sure that our messaging goes out clearly to all of them, including uh, you know, men and women, I think that's how we make sure that we're being equitable across the entire um, population that, that we serve. Um, Plan design is another interesting one. Our plan design actually mirrors Fegley's plan design, which is the employer plan. And so we're five-year tiered rates, for example. That's not a common life insurance industry 
plan design, but that's exactly what Begley has. And so we keep it there. They're also the employer and they don't have, for example, male or female rates. They don't have, um, they only price on age and um, zip code. And in the case of the employer plan, they're aggregating a huge number of folks in their plan. Their plan overall is well over 2 million individuals in it because it also has retirees and um, it's a massive plan. To my knowledge, it's the largest group life insurance program in the country by far. Um, we also have never had male or female rates, for example. And I, in this day and age, I'm very proud of that. We also don't have preferred standard, substandard rates. We do this on purpose. We could easily carve off and say, you know, if you're a marathon runner, you're going to get X, your insurance for X dollars. Or, um, you know, if, if you're in less good health, you know, maybe you pay an additional amount. We, we don't feel that that's fair to the civilian federal population. So we have not changed that plan design that was put in place in the 1970s. Um, so it's a little bit old school, but what's interesting is what was old is new again. So this, this fairness issue is something that we live every day and we try to make sure that we get our message out to the entire civilian federal population. We give them the messaging they need um, that helps them make decisions not a sales pitch. You know, if you look at our advertising, it's not salesy. It, it's really about education and informing. As a nonprofit, this is our mission. Uh, of course, we have to make money. We're an ongoing concern, but um, we're not all about making sure that next quarter's um, 10Q, you know, profit margins are being satisfied. So, um, and then on top of that, we don't differentiate or delineate between genders or zip codes, doesn't matter where you live. Uh, we also take most individuals into our plan. And that's the final leg of that stool is we take about 80% of the people who apply into the plan for a voluntary plan like ours. That's a huge percentage. We're also somewhat lenient. So if you've recovered from a minor cancer policy uh, episode, for example, you'll get in our plan. Not, I'm not guaranteed, I shouldn't say that guaranteed, but we, if you smoke, we'll probably get into our plan. But we have so many people, Jason, in the plan that the dips and curves in the loss ratio that that might um, generate are absorbed with the volume of people. Got it. Um, no, that's really helpful information, Shane. Uh, thank you. We have to pause to take our final break. Uh, when we return, we're going to wrap up our discussion. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're entering the last segment of our show, so let's dive right in. Uh, we've been talking today about the equity, the gender equity gap within uh, life insurance coverage, but I want to take a step back in our last segment to look at life insurance in the broader context of um, benefits, benefits that are offered by employers. Um, and that matter to employees. And, and as we're seeing amidst the great resignation and folks considering kind of all of these things, um, what are what benefits are offered are really critical to attracting and retaining uh, employees and also giving employees that peace of mind that they need uh, in their personal lives so they can remain productive um, while they're on the job. Uh, and, and Allison, I know Limra has a, a study that I think just came out looking at the employer views on, on the future of benefits. And I'm, I'm uh, hoping that you can share some of the top level findings from that with us. 
I would be happy to, and actually we asked employees as well as employers about their attitudes, um, because right now I'm sure you, you've seen, you know, all of that, um, the news coverage about the great resignation or the great reshuffling, um, which, which re is real. And so we asked employees, you know, what are the things that you want from a potential employer and what are the benefits that you most value? And we found a relationship between the benefits that that um, people are offered and their perceptions of their employer as somebody who as an employer who cares about them or is invested in them. So to, to start off, you know, if, when you're asking a candidate, you know, what makes them want to join a company, once you get past, you know, salary and medical benefits right now, a lot of what they want to talk about is flexibility or work-life balance, the ability to, to be remote and flexibility. So that I think is, is showing a shift from, you know, it used to just be purely a decision based on what financial benefits I had, you know, a retirement plan, insurance, et cetera, to having these more flexible benefits are absolutely more important. We also know that people who have access to insurance benefits like life insurance through their employer are more likely to believe that their employer cares about them and employees who believe that their employer cares about them usually are willing to stay for the longer term. Because we saw, we asked them, how likely are you to look for a new job? One in 10 employees right now told us they are actively looking for a job. So if you have good talent and you want to keep them, you have to offer them the right benefits. So it's benefits like um, <clears throat> it's benefits like the medical, the retirement and the insurance, as well as the flexibility. Those are most likely to get you employees that are happy and want to stay. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that with us. And and this is definitely a huge issue that we're hearing and seeing everywhere, certainly within the federal government and out there in the broader economy. Uh, Shane, I'm, I'm curious about your perspective just on on this issue of uh, the benefits from being provided by the employer and, and, you know, how is the federal government keeping up? I, I think what um, the federal government is doing now um, really focusing on now, and especially with the current administration, is making sure that pay is comparable to the private sector. That is, um, many studies show pay is, uh, suggest that pay is not a principal driver why somebody stays in, a, in an employment arrangement, but the reality is not so easily stated. If you're not paying to market, people leave. So it's it's these two statements are incongruent. I think what people are trying to get at is your entire workplace. Um, uh, you know, it, from the HR standpoint, you would call this total comp, which is a combination of what you get paid plus your employee benefits, and then it add into that things like vacation and time off, um, holidays. If you wrap all that up together, that's considered your total compensation package. And um, the federal government does some of this really well and some of it not. It's been studied many, many times in great depth. They do um, in, uh, not across every single profession, but most professions, federal government pays reasonably. It starts to get a little bit out of whack when you get into the higher, skilled professions, say, for example, physicians. Uh, they actually have different, VA has different pay scales, for example, for physicians. There are other places in the federal space where you'll see adjustments made to get the kind of talent inside the federal government from a pay perspective. Federal government also has a service to your country model, which is completely different than the private sector. The private, if you're at all civic minded, there is not a company in the United States that can beat the federal government. And, and a lot of people stay for that reason. There's also security in job um, placement. Uh, you know, jobs in the federal government are very secure. Uh, there are legal um, insulation from uh, lawsuits in many cases. This is then so federal employees can make decisions without having um, third party pressures on them to push their decisions in one way or another. It insulates them so they can make better decisions. 
And the benefits are a mixed bag. So if, if so we've talked about most of the other pieces of the employee value proposition. That's the HR name for it, EVP, employee value proposition. What are you bringing in total to your employees? Um, health insurance, the federal government uh, health offering is, is staggeringly robust. It, in fact, it's almost too big. There are 20 different uh, carriers. The TSP program is uh, very strong still to this day, and there's a defined uh, benefit element still in the federal pension plan. Uh, except for unions, I don't know of any corporate entity who can match the, the federal retirement program. The life insurance program is kind of standard. It's actually a little outdated in that um, employees have to pay part of their premiums for basic um, for uh, the lowest levels of coverage. That's unusual in corporate America. Usually it's entirely employer paid with the ability to buy up. Um, the, uh, the, a piece that uh, short-term disability, for example, federal employees don't have federal uh, short-term disability offered through OPM. Doesn't exist. That's one of the reasons why we put it together one. It wasn't that we were just trying to put out another product. There was actually a need. Um, uh, some of the other programs that you see in the corporate America you don't see in the federal government, and I think they need to work on this, are what's called voluntary benefits. Federal government doesn't have that at all. So uh, if you work at GM or Ford Motor, uh, you can buy group price discounted, for example, legal assistance plans or pet insurance. There are a lot of things which only appeal to a small part of the population, but employers do that really well. Federal government should really look into that. Yeah, well, um, thank you both. You know, it's, we might have to have you both come back for, a, for another discussion to talk about this broader uh, array of benefits and issues and you know obviously a major challenge with the government is we need congress oftentimes to authorize or or change some of these these benefits so that the government can compete or or set that standard um as a model employer but uh unfortunately we're we're, we're close to the end of our time here today um i want to thank uh shane canfield the ceo of wepa um, Allison Salka, the Vice President and Director of Research at LIMRA, for joining us here today to talk about this conversation um, focused on the uh, equity gap in life insurance coverage. Before I send you both away, just wanted to let you let our listeners know where they can find out more information about WEPA and about LIMRA. Uh, and Shane, uh, where can folks find WEPA? Yes, uh, W-A-E-P-A. And, and it is an acronym. It stands for Worldwide Assurance for Employees of Public Agencies, which is why we use the acronym. WEPA.org is uh, where you can find out more. And of course, we have phone numbers and emails, and you can check us out in any one of those manners. Thanks, Shane. And thanks for being here with us on Fed Talk again. Uh, Allison, where can folks uh, find uh, the great work that you're doing over at LIMRA? I'd recommend that they go to our website, which is www.limra.com, L-I-M-R-A.com, where we do have public access to some of our research and, and some videos and webinars. So you can go there for more information. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you both for, for being such great guests. I know I learned a ton on this program. Uh, Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Have a great rest of the day.